and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. Seems like every other day there's a poll coming out about the marquee statewide Pennsylvania races as well as the hot congressional races. Now, not all these polls are created equal. Today, in August, we're going to go back to school early. We're going to learn from the top political scientist and nonpartisan pollster in PA about the methodology and the science that goes into conducting a great poll. Professor Chris Borick from Muhlenberg College joins us live from the Lehigh Valley. To that point, we've got some new numbers out of the state of Pennsylvania. A new Fox News poll released just yesterday shows Democrat John Fetterman leading Republican Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, by 11 points now, 47 to 36. In that state's governor's race, the same Fox News poll shows Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro leading Republican State Senator Doug Mastriano by 10 points, 50 to 40. Professor Chris Bork, welcome to my kitchen table. Welcome back, by the way. Thank you, Ari. It is is very, very good to be back and uh, and join you at your kitchen table. It's summertime in Pennsylvania, so I, I know you, people can't see me, but I have an Arnold Palmer, a very Pennsylvania uh, drink full of ice to keep me cool on this, this summer day. Well, we have a lot of listeners increasingly from outside of Pennsylvania, so I'm going to test your Pennsylvania trivia or just remind folks about Arnold Palmer and his Pennsylvania heritage. Oh, my gosh. A, a Pennsylvania icon, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, very much uh, a Western Pennsylvania uh, figure and beloved uh, golfer. Maybe, you know, the heroes like Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas certainly had more majors. But if you wanted to find a beloved golf figure in the history of the game, no one is, is bigger than Arnie and his army of fans. And he's very much a beloved figure in Pennsylvania. And many people who don't know golf probably know him only through the concoction that is a mixture of iced tea and lemonade. That is a perfect drink for a summer day. Well, your polling is a beloved creature in uh, Pennsylvania and is a uh, perfect uh, ingredient for the final 90 days of a campaign. So we're not going to get necessarily into your polling, although uh, you shared with me before we uh, sat down that that maybe uh, we'll have a fuller discussion in September. But I thought that over the next uh, 30 minutes or so, we'd take listeners through kind of the bigger picture of how one polls Pennsylvania, what distinguishes a good poll from a bad poll. Before we get into any of that, maybe share a little about your background uh, for listeners that didn't join us uh, last year. Yeah, thanks, Ari. I am, uh, I guess you can call me a pollster. I'm a political scientist um, by training. Quantitative methodology uh, is my is my background. And I've been running polling institutes, public opinion research institutes for a quarter of a century um, in Wisconsin for a few years before returning to Pennsylvania my home state in 2000 and uh, helping along with colleagues at Muhlenberg develop the Institute of Public Opinion there at Muhlenberg College in Allentown in 2001. And 20 years later, uh, still at it in the Commonwealth, you know, doing polling, both electoral politics, which, you know, this 
season is, of course, something that a lot of people are interested in, but broader public opinion research on policy issues in Pennsylvania and, and nationally on an array of issues with health and environment being particularly of, of interest to me. So um, I'm engaged in the, the methods, practice, and implementation of, of polls here uh, in Pennsylvania for quite some time. So you shared a little about Latrobe, Pennsylvania, but listeners might know that you're not from Latrobe. So where, before you went out to Wisconsin, where where did you grow up? And um, also maybe share a bit about Muhlenberg College and where you live now. Sure, Ari. I'm kind of uh, diagonally uh, across the Commonwealth. I grew up in Scranton, which is, you know, across uh, the corner of uh, the great Commonwealth from Latrobe in the southwest to the northeast. I grew up there. Penn State uh, alum, like so many are in the <laughs> Commonwealth, uh, and I've uh, been down at Muhlenberg College uh, here in Allentown now for, for almost, uh, well, over 22 years. And, you know, Allentown, of course, is, is uh, I don't know, of course, for a lot of people, but it, it's maybe surprisingly for folks, the third biggest city in the Commonwealth, you know, heart of the Lehigh Valley, which is one of the growing areas of, of Pennsylvania. I live over in uh, in Northampton County, which is the adjacent um, county to Lehigh County, where Allentown is, in uh, in lovely Nazareth, PA, very historic little town, uh, nestled in uh, in the heart of Northampton County, and also one of the premier kind of areas of the country, if you will, in terms of battleground places. Northampton County. Here's a little nugget for you. I think is the best bellwether county in Pennsylvania for predicting elections. How the state goes often is determined, almost always determined, about what happens in Northampton County. It's just a beautiful bellwether and it kind of captures Pennsylvania right now. So not only do I like, you know, polling the state, but I walk down Main Street here in Nazareth and I'm in the heart of one of the most competitive political places and representative political places you'll find in in the state. That is a excellent little bit of trivia about Northampton County. Are you referring to the presidential statewide elections or any statewide election? Northampton County is the bellwether. Any statewide, definitely in presidential elections. But you look at statewide, you know, midterm races, gubernatorial races, off-year elections. I think I often look to see what's happening here in Northampton to see kind of what is happening broader both across the state and sometimes across the country. So it's it's a it's an amazing place. It gets lots of attention from folks outside. I know your podcast has as listeners beyond our our borders. And we get tons of visitors from Washington, New York, from all over the world actually that want to come and see what's happening here because it, it's it's a place that I think very much captures many of the the divides, debates, discussions that are going on in American politics. Well, before we get to the next 90 days and all the twists and turns and all these polls that seem to be coming out every other day uh, about the statewide races, let's take a step back and what to use your term, quarter century. I mean, when you started uh, the science of polling or you started in this in Pennsylvania, what's changed? I mean, how, how does one conduct a poll now? Is it different? Maybe I shouldn't assume that it's different. Yeah, it's it's different in so many ways, Ari. When I started doing this, you know, in the '90s, and <laughs> in, in, in Wisconsin, directing an institute, uh, polling was was really a different world in many ways. You know, some of the fundamentals are the same: how you craft questions in neutral ways, not to bias 
what people believe and, and think. So they'll share it with you in an, in an honest way. A lot of those things remain the same, but the methodology, the sampling, the mode of collection have very much evolved. It's, it's hard to believe, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of, of your younger listeners, uh, that there was a time when I started where there were very few cell phones amongst the population that our methodology was almost exclusively landline telephones, you know, hardlined household numbers. And it was in some ways really, you know, you know, at the time I didn't think so, but looking back on it, a really glorious time to poll because of of the ubiquitous nature of landlines and households. Even by the time I started getting involved in the in the late 90s, you know, we had seen issues like declining response rates be an issue and concern and in sampling, making sure we're getting representative groups to tell us about the populations we're looking at. But that of course has changed. You know, not a lot of people, I I would wager to say people listening to your podcast, Ari, probably most of them don't have landlines in their their home. Cords have been cut a long time ago. And so, you know, doing polling today uh, requires reaching people in many different ways, you know, obviously being cell phones, which is predominant way we will try to reach out to people, but a variety of methods using the technologies that are available. Um, and it's, it's posed enormous challenges for the industry that I'm part of. Um, and, and has made, I, I think a lot of people that practice this art or science have to be very nimble and constantly evolving in how they, they approach their, their job. Let's just get granular. I mean, it's something that comes up all the time. You know, people that follow politics say, oh, I don't trust the polls because no one has a landline. So where's this data you know, even deriving from? So how, how do you respond to that? I mean, how, how does a credible institute like yours and other credible pollsters engage with the broad cross-section of everyday Pennsylvanians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, certainly, you know, there's the perception that, that polls aren't, aren't accurate. And empirically, we can show people, okay, how do they perform, you know, individually, like our poll at the Institute, or on an aggregate across a state or a country in any cycles and over time. And we could demonstrate that empirically. We are empiricist. When the polls are are on or off, and they do vary, and they varied over time, you know, even in, in days when we did have kind of a landline approach to doing this. Um, and I could show people, I could show them that, hey, it's it's not all that different, at least on an aggregate in terms of being able to predict, if you will, what, what outcomes we see in elections. Now, that doesn't always serve <laughs> my goals and convince people they'll, you know, they'll kind of look at the data in whatever way they want to look at and make conclusions they want to. But the reality is that polls on a whole are, are even given the, the methodological challenges, still pretty predictive of the races within the bounds of, of reasonable expectations, right? If you expect polls to, to nail every race and be within about a point or two of outcomes, you really don't know sampling and you really don't understand the nature of inferential statistics. We're, we're, we're giving estimates, right, of, of what's going to happen. So there's always going to be, even the, the best polls are going are gonna to miss sometimes because that's what sampling, the practice of sampling will, will do. That being said, are, are there in any given cycles problems? Yeah, there is. And, and most people will point to the, the 2020 and 2016 presidential races where President Trump was on the ballot. And systematically, in both of those races, Trump's support was understated. 
and which represents systematic errors in both of those races. Now, sometimes there were some glaring examples and other times it was fairly reasonable. In fact, if you look back at our polls over time, you could see we were off by as much as we were for Obama's second election as we were for Trump's, you know, in 2020. What troubled me the most about the two Trump races is that it was the same candidate back-to-back races and in the same direction, which I think raises, you know, legitimate questions, what was happening in the polls. And it wasn't just our polls, it was other polls. And so you have to be attentive to those types of, of challenges and and try to diagnose, which isn't always easy, exactly what the causes were, uh, and remedy them with, with various approaches that you think will, will help. And sometimes they will. And sometimes I can give examples where you, you go back and you say, well, I thought by all clear evidence this was a good move um, methodologically, and, and maybe it wasn't in retrospect. So you, you, this is fascinating. Uh, you, you, you've alluded to it. I mean, what, and we don't need to name polling outfits, but I'm just kind of curious when people are seeing all of these polls, I mean, what distinguishes a good poll from a great poll from a bad poll? For example, you mentioned sample size, but yeah, there, there must be several factors. There are, there are so many, right? And, you know, what in the long term, you want to look at a poll's performance and see, you know, over time, does it does it do a pretty good job of demonstrating what the actual outcomes and validated outcomes? Right. And of course, you know, no polls are always done beforehand. So there's a lot of things that move in the end. And and so even the best poll might not capture everything and so not be a perfect match of, of what happens. But here's the things that I look for. When I'm, I'm thinking about a good a good poll, you know, first of all, transparency. I want to see, you know, not only what people are showing us their estimates from a poll, but how they got there. Uh, I want to see the instrument. I want to see the question wording. These are things, by the way, that you always should demand, and you should be very concerned if a pollster is not sharing with you the with with the details about what their questionnaire looked like, what order of questions were in, what ordering effects could determine aspects of how people answer. You want to see their sampling. How are they getting their sample? What's, you know, this is going to get geeky. What's their sample frame? Are they using voter files? Are they using, you know, random digit dials from telephones or some other online non-probability based survey? So I want to know how they they sample. I, I want to see, you know, details of, of when they were in the field. Obviously, sample size, as you mentioned already, of course, matters. It's not the be all to end all. You could have a poll with 500 respondents that I trust a lot more than a poll with 5,000 <laughs> respondents in terms of, of how they're selected. You want to see the weighting for the poll. Which factors, variables are they weighting and what are they weighting to, which is a big challenge. Like if I'm talking about a population survey, I could use census numbers, right, to tell you if I undersampled people based on their gender identity or racial identity or ethnic identity, I could match that up and weight to a, a parameter that's set by the Census Bureau. For elections, that's hard because it's a moving target, right? We don't know necessarily who's going to show up, which brings in things like likely voter models. And I'm, I'm rolling on here as a, a pollster. I want to see how your screeners were for likely voters as we get close to the election. Is it a tight screen where you're really you know, tightly looking at who you are? It's kind of more general and you're you know, maybe not having as many questions to determine that, or if you're not using past voting performance to see if that predicts if someone will show up. So there's there's lots of decisions. And these are all, by the way, I really want to make it clear, legitimate choices that pollsters are going to have to make, and they might even differ on some. In fact, almost always, I could talk to colleagues who I 
very, very much respect. And I think are great pollsters that might make some modestly different choices in how they do this. So I, I like to look for all those, all those details. There's good stuff. A lot to, uh, for listeners to digest there. Uh, can we go back to waiting and then screening? So I'm not a pollster. I never had a statistics class, but I certainly have looked at uh, many polls because I think like lots of listeners, uh, to use your term, we are geeks. We're, we're, we're political geeks. So for example, we know that not all counties of Pennsylvania are created equal. Some are quite densely populated. Some are the opposite. So if a poll, for example, has more from a certain more respondents from a certain part of Pennsylvania, and it's a statewide poll. Is that what you mean by weighted? Or if it's 70% male respondents or 70% 80-year-old respondents or something like this? And what what do you mean by weighted? Yeah, all of the above, uh, Ari. So we want to wait. You know, anytime you take a sample, and it's a small subset of a population, it's not going to look perfectly like the population. So you use gender, people identifying as male or female. So let's say the population is 51% female and 49% male in terms of identification. Now, in, in our sample, when we you know talk to 500 or 1,000 people, we have 55% uh, male and 45% female. Obviously, we have a larger portion of our sample that's male than in the population. So if we just went with those numbers and people identifying as male have different viewpoints than those identifying as female, which is often the case. We see gender differences. Our estimates for the population of the population are going to overstate the male uh, view, if you will, in those situations. So what we would do is statistically wait. I was just doing this in my, my grad class yesterday with students. So I'd say, well, if we know the population numbers that the Census Bureau gives us, we could just do a, a pretty easy mathematical calculation. And for every person in the survey that was overrepresented in the sample, we lower their impact in in terms of the the estimates. And for those that are underrepresented in the sample, we weight them higher. Uh, and by doing that, those adjustments, you can find a way through the adjustments to to mirror what you think the actual population levels are. And then if we can tease out when you use the term screening, I don't want to assume that the listeners are familiar with that term. So, you know, a voter, a likely voter screen is you're trying at the pre-election poll. Eventually, you want to give some clarity on what's going to happen during election day, as best you can tell at any given point of time moving forward. So as you get closer and closer to election day, you, you want to have the, the individuals that are most likely to show up that are in your sample and not people that maybe are registered and are not. So you have to screen in likely voters. You have to screen them in and screen out people that are not likely or not going to vote at all. And you could do that in a very a variety of ways, Ari. You know, one, you could look at past voting performance if you're using voter files. So a little knowledge for, for folks that may not know a lot about voter files. We could tell how often people vote. I can't tell you how you voted, but I could look up, you know, Ari Middleman and find out when you voted which elections. Um, and I can get a pretty good predictor of your likelihood of voting, not a perfect one. Each um, and every one of them since age 18, just for the record. But, uh, <laughs> oh, no, we got it. Uh, listeners, that uh, he, 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 you, you've done it. Congratulations, by the way. Keep up the streak. But we could do that, right? And so I could tell maybe someone's pretty likely from past behaviors. Now, that's not perfect. Maybe for some reasons in this election, they're 
less likely or, or not like them. Then we might have to do it internally in the survey instrument by asking questions. Sometimes directly, hey, are you likely to vote? You know, how likely are you to vote? And we have to do some wording in there because there's this thing called social desirability that people want to tell you they're going to vote, right? Because we've been trained that you should vote. So we might have to soften the language and say things like, hey, you know, sometimes you can't vote because you're busy and life gets in the way. How likely are you really to vote in this coming election? And then we might, you know, that's one question. Maybe we want to ask follow-up questions about do they know, for example, historically, when you vote in person, where your polling station was is a pretty good indication. Or how closely are you following the race? We find historically, if, if you say you're following it really closely, you're much more likely to vote. And so, and different pollsters build in these different likely voter models for how they try to deduce that. And that's really where you, you often see some difference among pollsters and how they come out at the end to say who's in and who's out. So I also, uh, going back to the question of good, great, and bad polling, if I'm understanding correctly, maybe I'm stating the obvious, but I just don't know because no one's ever called and asked my opinion. This is human to human. Right. I mean, he, he, there are ways, obviously, of robots doing this or texting, but and I'm sure this cycle we're seeing a lot of those. But are those not quality polls? I mean, does this really need to be human to human to have a quality uh, data set? Oh, that's such a good good question. And, and, and you know, over time, that's been a big debate. I, I, I will, you know, even though most of our polls remain human to human, you know, dialed, hand dialed calls to, to voters, I would not say overwhelmingly that that's the only way to do a good poll right now. We're kind of in this emerging period where lots of methods are being tested. Lots of different varieties are being tested. And some of them have have proven, at least in the short term, to be pretty productive. Again, it's the short term because we don't have that many data points, that many elections to, uh, to do this. So you could do it just by, you know, voice, person to person, trained interviewer, calling someone and asking questions. You could do it through people have got robo polls, if you will, where you're asked through a automated message to hit numbers in as they ask questions. Those have been around for a while and have had some mixed performance, you know, as, as we compare methodologies to, to look at. Some of them have done pretty well, some of them have not. Of course, now you have online panels uh, where people conduct their polls online and web-based platforms. And, and those could be very different. I'll just take a few more seconds and you know, kind of get a little into the weeds here. It's the samples that you're using, um, the panels that you're using. And, and I'll just kind of give a, a comparison. Some panels are constructed, online panels, where people take the polls online in what I would determine or, or describe as a probability means. Pollsters reach out uh, via phone, via mail uh, to try and cover the whole population and invite people to be in the panel. So it starts from the premise that everybody in the population, be it a state or region, has an equal chance to be in the poll, which is a cornerstone of probability sampling. And then the panel is built that way, but you conduct the survey, not so much in, a, in an interview, but a, a face-to-face, or excuse me, a person-to-person interview, but online. And that's that that methodology, I think, is very well accepted in the industry and used in a lot of polls. People like Pew uh, employ panels like that very uh, regularly and, and do a great job with it. There are other panels that are opt in panels where people, you know, through other through various web activities kind of opt in to be part of surveys and are invited in. And they don't necessarily have the same representative quality as a probability based panel. Can they sometimes produce 
good results or accurate results. Sure, you, you see this. Sometimes it, the, I think the, the recipe that the, those methodologies look at is, is kind of size. They get a lot of uh, individuals in. They have a pretty big sample size and they do a lot of weighting, you know, really robust weighting to try and, and measure. But anytime you're, you're kind of going through those procedures where you're allowing people to, 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 to drop in and then try to accommodate or to correct being via weighting, there's, there's some concerns. So there, there's another element of research that I imagine a fairly small subset of listeners has been privy to, and that is an in-person focus group. Then I'm sure the campaign managers and candidates and operatives that listen to this show, I've seen footage from these. And um, I don't think that's what you were alluding to with panels, but maybe you can speak to that. These are uh, obviously, they could very well be happening now, but they, you know, they're, they're occurring as candidates are figuring out exactly the right messaging in the final sprint of uh, campaigns. Yeah, they, they, you know, focus groups are a valuable way to get insight into the voting populace or the population as a whole. But they are, I always describe when I teach this to students, they are not substitutes for polls. So if someone, you know, I get a, a, a group or someone say, hey, can we do a focus group and understand what people want, you know, in the, in the policy or program, whatever it is, and just do that? I'd say, well, y- y- you could, but that's not the way to do it. Because you know, if you get a focus group of 15 people, you think that's representative of the general population? Good luck. It's a sample of 15. Would you like a poll that had a sample of 15? What focus groups are wonderful for is as a complementary tool to quantitative empirical public opinion research polls. A, a focus group or a series of focus groups could help you, first of all, create a survey by hearing what people are thinking about, what's on their mind what kind of issues they're looking at, how they're framing issues. And then after, and I love this, Ari, when I have the resources and the time to do so, is conduct focus groups after we do the polling to really dig deeper on what people might have said or why they said, the why is the big question here, why they said what they did and to, and to put a face on it. You know, how do they arrive at their decisions? What are the, What's going on in their personal world? You can kind of make it there. So they're wonderful tools. They're employed by political, economic, social groups all the time. And I think they're very valuable. They're not a substitute uh, for polls. They're really valuable. I, I was, again, you know, teaching this just the uh, last night with, with my class. We were looking at a series of focus groups that Pew did with Asian Americans. They did, Pew did, I think, like 60 or 80 groups, focus groups across the country to match with their broad polling on this emerging uh, key cohort within the American populace. And they were incredibly insightful to read as a complement to their quantitative work. So you uh, mentioned the number 15. That would not be a good sample size for a poll. But, you know, it does beg the question, as record amounts of money are being spent on state house races across Pennsylvania and to a degree state Senate races. But we have, you know, we have new lines for the state house and state Senate. And there are polls that are emerging, public and private. So is this effective? I mean, it, with a state house district that I mean, how, how do you get an accurate sample size uh, in districts that are so small? I guess is what I'm. Yeah, you could. I mean, it's, it's it's great. I mean, Ari, you know, the the population. I mean, in a state house district, you know, if it's sixty thousand or whatever, I, I should know this number. Is certainly one where you could do, you know, a, a, a standard poll of voters, just like you would in a state or a country that you're looking at. It's one of the the things that I think I've I'm always students are baffled by. 
that you could use the same sample size. If I wanted to tell you about people in Northampton County or in Pennsylvania or in the United States or in North America, and, and I did a sample of a thousand, you know, you know chosen correctly uh, from those groups, I can give you the same, the same margin of error. It's going to be the same margin of error. And that freaks people out because they think, well, you know, there's, yeah, I don't know, 400 million people in North America uh, and there's only, you know, 250,000 in Northampton County. How could the same sample size? It's just the nature of sampling. And it's, it's hard to, to, to show you that. And so for state house districts, if you did a sample of, you know, 400 people, just like we might do statewide, you'd be able to do the same estimates of, if done right, of what public sentiment is in those areas. And, you know, there, for state houses, we've seen that much more common. There was a time because polling prices were pretty high, you would rarely see them in state house races. Now, I, I have friends that are doing it in a par- partisan polling that regularly do all the way down to state house races or local races. So you've been very generous with your time, but you know, before we let you off the hook here, we, we got to talk specifics. And uh, you know, and there's polls aplenty. We don't need to name them, but we're seeing all sorts of margins in the gubernatorial race, in the Senate race. I think now you've provided listeners a lot of background if they want to go back and look at some of these points and whether or not these polls are being honest with uh, and transparent. But what do you make of uh, this this historic election cycle? Well, first of all, it's it's it is a historic cycle in Pennsylvania. We have these two premier races happening at the same time with open seats and high profile candidates and all kinds of implications moving forward for upcoming races. So you're you know you don't throw around that historic moniker very lightly, but it is it is historic. So it's going to be very polled races in Pennsylvania. You've seen it already, as you alluded to, already with some early polling in both the senatorial and gubernatorial races in the state. And you'll see much, much more, including by our work at Ben Muhlenberg and lots of other academic and pollsters in and outside the Commonwealth. So expect a barrage, which in the end is is a good thing. I think that you have many you know sources coming in and for aggregates and modeling, it, it probably is, is beneficial to have, have lots. It could also be, you know, any given poll that comes out in the cycle and sometimes ones that might not have all the things we've talked about earlier that comes up with the result and then everybody's a buzz about that particular poll at one point of time can i think not necessarily be the best thing for people to be focusing on in terms of of the race and we could have a broad debate about it should we be focusing on polls at all and and instead you know talking more about issues that's a legitimate debate that we should always have um but prepare for lots of polls i think the early polling in this race if you look look at it it's shown i think that the Democratic candidates for both gubernatorial and the Senate have established themselves as front runners, but ones that are in competitive races that that I think given the historical cycle that we're in and President Biden's public standing will probably be fairly competitive to the end um, in, in Pennsylvania, you know, and so polling is going to be even more looked at it's if you got you know blowout races and i've done a lot of blowout races in pennsylvania where it's okay is it going to be 15 or 20 points uh in the end um this cycle lends itself you know i think to 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 maybe by its nature be more competitive so to that point and to your earlier point about recent difficulties with let's just be honest the, the voter on the phone talking to a stranger maybe not being comfortable saying i'm going to vote for president trump or as we look at these margins at this point, do you see 
Republicans coming home, so to speak? Or, or is there indeed a cross-section, in your opinion, of self-identified Republican voters who are not going to vote for their party's nominees? Yeah, you, you will see in this era right now, we're in this really pivotal kind of heart of this negative partisan era in, in American politics where you just, you don't vote for the other party. So if you're a Republican, you know, you're, you're so anti-democratic, D, big D for Democratic Party, um, that you're just not going to, you're not going to break. And same with Democrats. And that's for the overwhelming majority of voters in those those issues. But voters' elections are often decided on the margin in places like Pennsylvania. And Republicans can't, re- given still, even though they've closed the gap with Democrats in the state, they can't afford a lot of defections from the party and be able to win statewide in Pennsylvania. Over the last decade, it's Republicans have had a tough time often winning statewide. And they need to keep Republican unity strong. And I think for Doug Mastriano and Mehmet Oz, that's an absolute essential. They're, if they see defections, it's going to be hard mathematically to beat pretty strong candidates uh, on the Democratic side. So job one for Republicans is to, to ensure that they don't have a lot of defections. And as you said, Republicans rank and file, Republicans come home to those candidates. Uh, and you see, I think a lot of the efforts early in the campaign early as ish right now as we're in August for folks like Mastriano are to try and make sure they're they're doing that. Governor DeSantis of Florida, as we're you're talking, you know, is coming in this week to help him. And yeah, why, you know, why DeSantis? Well, he's very popular among Republicans. So start working on holding that base. Okay, so final question you alluded to me before we uh, started recording. Maybe you can give uh, listeners a sneak preview, but um, your institute, Muhlenberg College, uh, what do you have in store over the next 90 days? Uh, You have some surveys going in the field, I understand. Yeah, we'll we'll be polling quite a bit. Ari, we haven't done a general election poll. We've kind of been waiting for the the fall season. So we're going to do a number of statewide races, the gubernatorial and the Senate races, uh, at least a couple of polls, probably beginning in late August, early September, right in through November. We'll also be polling the 7th Congressional District, where we're located in the Lehigh Valley, is one of the premier competitive districts in Pennsylvania, uh, right now held by Democrat Susan Wild, Representative Wild. Uh, so we're going to be polling that race. We pulled that district for a number of years, and it looks by all means or measures to be something that's going to be quite competitive. So we want to get some uh, measures in there. So a lot of statewide and congressional polling and and RN is going to be a very, very busy fall at the Institute. Well, Professor, thanks very much. And I wouldn't be surprised if we can convince you to come back. I think listeners would be uh, very eager to hear. So I wouldn't be surprised if uh, you take me up on that offer. I'm putting you on the spot to uh, unpackage your polling results. I, it would be my pleasure. Ari, always happy to uh, to join you at your uh, your table and talk. I hope uh all this methods talk has not uh, cost you listeners in your uh, in your audience who are are saying, "Oh my God, it's like a you know a methods class." Uh, I, I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe your your grad students now don't need to go to class; they can just tune into the podcast. Uh, no, so. uh, they might if they're if they're listeners, they're going to probably say say, "No, no, no, I've heard this all before." <laughs> all right, thank you so much. My pleasure. Stay well. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Take a minute and leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform. Please also consider following us on social media for updates and announcements regarding future episodes and new guests. 
You're political, so I am sure that you're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. We are too at PA Political Podcast. Visit our website, papoliticalpodcast.org, and send us your feedback about this episode and suggestions on future guests. Until next week. 